Guys, did you know this? Uh, something just blew my mind before we start here that uh, freezies apparently are only called freezies in Canada. What? You guys, did you? That's not true. What do they call? Apparently, them? in the states, they call them freeze pops, and uh, they also get called uh, zuper dupers in uh, Australia or icy pole. I'm just <laughs> that looking was not at the bad. Wikipedia. So freezy is a snack name. That's a cute suck. If I'm like. Hey, give me a suck on that icy pole. I don't know. That's just way too literal. <laughs> yeah, suck on my icy pole, you fucker. <laughs> Come on, Australia. Be better. It's these insuperable cultural differences that strain our relationships with our friends down south. Yeah, do you yeah, know so they, what they call smarties are what we call rockets? That's right. That's so weird, too. Oh, I would be so pissed if I wanted smarties and I ended up with these little sugary pills. Oh yeah, rockets are disgusting. So anyone who is uh, not Canadian, I wonder if other countries have it too. No, our Smarties are like M&Ms, except the chocolate tastes different inside. It's yeah, like I think Brits, Brits also have our kinds of Smarties. But yeah, I don't know. I just saw this Freezy thing. Someone tweeted and was just like, important question, like, what are these called? And it was a picture of Freezies. And then a bunch of people were saying like Freeze Pops or like other oh stuff God. and i was like what the fuck is going on here what's next they don't have bagged milk down there <laughs> hey we don't we don't have bagged milk on the west coast i really think it's a pretty useless thing to be honest with you uh but it's weird how many things are distinctively canadian like i lived in mexico for a couple of years and what i realized that was really disappointing is it had no fucking salt and vinegar chips like i knew oh, yeah. that ketchup chips were kind of like a uniquely us thing but like Salt and vinegar, I thought, was kind of a worldwide favorite. And all uh, dressed, yeah. too. I think Canada's got all dressed, but America Canada more than makes dressed. up for that with 10 million types of cereals and things like that. Salt and vinegar is also like probably most English-speaking world. Like I would imagine they yeah. love that in Britain, and like the States obviously has it, too. Well, now we've established our identity as <laughs> yeah. Canadians. Canadian identity. Our continuous and connected identity. And when you define your identity in terms of the products you consume, what's that called? Capitalist ideology, yeah. which is what I wish we were talking about today. Yeah, this so so pills. You love this one, eh? This is like your favorite topic ever, or what? Freeze pops or identity? Oh, let's roll the music. <laughs> Freezies are indeed identity. Although I, w I would be okay with ice poles or whatever you said too. <laughs> Icy poles? It, it's very literal. It's very analytic ice philosophy pole. to describe yeah. it as an icy pole. But we could yeah, ask the analytic philosophers what truly is the nature of language and how does it reference icy I'll, poles or freezies? Let yeah, icy, the second freezy I eat be referred to as A2. Now, is there a relationship between A1 and A2? Well, hello, listener. If you clicked on this episode expecting some hot takes on initialisms, you fell up for the clickbait. Identity <laughs> schmolitex. <laughs> is that what you're going to call the episode? That's the name. Yeah, we're actually talking about identity. That's facts. But uh, That's absolutely true. It's a 1970s take that Matt made us read. I don't think Matt's ever going to be allowed to choose an article again. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll see. It's too early to say. Or we'll just get you, you back. This, we'll just get him back by picking like Derrida's Timpin or just something uh, completely to the other side of the spectrum. Uh, next is De Tour de Babel. <laughs> well, the reason that I chose this is, um, generally speaking, Parfit is considered 
or was considered uh, up until 2017 when he passed away, one of the world's most influential philosophers, particularly in the Anglo-American tradition. Uh, and there's kind of two strands to his work which have proven influential. Uh, one is his argument for what he calls the triple theory, uh, which is an attempt to kind of integrate what he considers to be the three main strands of moral thought together, consequentialism, contractualism, uh, and utilitarianism. Sorry, uh, yeah. and Dion. And actually, let me just stop you right there, too, and I should just be clear to the listeners that right now what we read was... Um, called Personal Identity by philosopher Derek Parfit in Philosophical Review uh, in January of 1971. If you want to find it online, you can read it before listening to the rest of this podcast yeah, to follow yeah. along if you want to. Or don't read or, it. Or just don't, because you're going to have gonna a bad have time. we're going to have to do some ground rules before yeah, Matt, there's gonna be Matt a lot talks of, a about lot the, of... the big threads of moral thought and analytic philosophy. Uh, that so, I don't want to get into today, actually. Oh, great. Well, th th this is why, right? That's This is one of the things that Parfit is known for, right? It's this three-volume book on what matters, right? Uh, and, you know, also other things like uh, the repugnant conclusion, which Eric and I might actually chat about since I know his thoughts on it. But long story short, the other thing that he's known for uh, is his critique of the self or the notion that there is a thick or strong version of the self that we can talk about. Uh, and this also has moral implications since Parfit makes this really kind of striking argument, which is that kind of draw, drawing later in his uh, life on Nietzsche, actually saying that if you go back and you look at many of the moral arguments philosophers in the European tradition have put forward, most of them are predicated on some theory of what the self is uh, and that the self is that what matters, right? And we can talk about like the different flavors of selfhood that he kind of diagnoses. But the argument he makes is that the self actually doesn't really exist, Right. Yeah. European philosophy in this respect is just a kind of misguided effort to talk about something that we had no business talking about. Uh, and consequently, once you kind of withdraw this notion of selfhood from our moral vocabulary, we can't really talk about morality in the same way any longer because it's not about interests or saving the soul. Before or we get to that, before we get to that, we should take this. We should take this step by step, I think, because uh, there are some argumentative moves. Yeah. So the majority of the audience will not have read this and probably will not read it. So whatever you say about it, we're going to have to go slow, which is hard because we've been arguing about this hardcore in chat for two days. Well, have we been arguing about it? Provide any necessary context. Discussion. Listeners, I'm sorry. Also, we have a no jargon rule. Usually I enforce that, but I'm already feeling myself getting red around the ears because of how much this article pissed me off. So <laughs> uh, we're going to use the talking stick. Try to indicate when you have to make a point, but keep your points short because otherwise we're going to be talking over each other. Whoa. I'm going to try, but question of the day, do we have personal identities? And if so, what do they consist in? How do we talk about it with language? And the thing is, funnily enough, I agree with the conclusion, generally yeah, speaking. Yeah, so, so do I. Though not at all with the method by which he reaches the conclusion and for that reason, I am skeptical of his conclusion because of the way he reaches it. And I don't know how much we're going to deal with this today. But it is to say, is identity as a concept a sing or too singular to express the vicissitudes and variability of time, memory? And can you all attribute that to one thing called the self? And then by extension, of course, as Matt was bringing up, can you make a moral philosophy or a political philosophy based on the self? His answer is we should be skeptical of it because the self is subject to time change, vicissitudes of life and all that. So it was tough to get through, though. That's for fucking sure. It is, it is tough to it's get good. through. And like, I don't I mean, that was that was a good little rundown. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess another way of putting it, too, is like it's delving onto the question of like, is there some sort of a stable like 
human like yeah i guess identity is right but i mean it kept making me think that this is like a kind of against philosophy of essences of human essences that it's like everything it's much more of a process like in some ways he's pointing out almost like a commonsensical thing that we have even kind of talked about it's one of our jokes about 20 year olds being idiots right and i think it's predicated on the fact that you change so much um you know that that's why it's like embarrassing for me to think about how much i loved uh you know richard dawkins when i was 20 years old because it, there's something intuitive about the fact that that really doesn't feel like me anymore like that, when we that's, do that's insult 20 not... year olds we're insulting ourselves x yeah, amount of years ago still but was it that. really me like well, like in what way was that myself so i think that's like another way of sort of setting up the question yeah, yeah. i was big into blink 82 when i was 14 years old so believe me i know i thought take off your pants and jacket i mean the i mean the basic way that Locke sets it up is like if you remember it then it's you and if you don't remember it then it's not you is that that is that fair that's probably really simple but that's kind of yeah the, that's that's the view that parfit is kind of gonna like take on like kind of disagree with and go in a different direction with but basically yeah i i make fun of 20 year olds because i still remember being one i am yeah. good towards my students when i when i teach because i still remember having gone through their exact process and some of the shit that i had to deal with and so i feel very sympathetic whereas it's hard to have sympathy with people who you've never been through their situation or you can't remember it or you don't have that that sort of sympathetic psychological connection to their own situation so it becomes harder to like you know be nice to them or feel bad for them or something like that well yeah, I'll just, I'm going to briefly kind of summarize what he takes to be like the things that he's targeting. Because it is the Lockean theory of selfhood, but it's more than that, right? Uh, so just putting it really briefly, he says, if you go back through the history of European philosophical thought, uh, and there's a lot of implications that flow from this we can talk about later. He says, there are kind of four candidates uh, that are plausible uh, for what the self happens to be. You know, what makes you, you, if you want to call it that, right? Uh, and putting it really briefly, like, the answers are the soul is what makes you you. And that's really been very popular in Greek philosophy, Christian philosophy. Uh, you could also call it Islamic philosophy as well, right? The soul is what makes you you. Uh, and then the second kind of art, like candidate put forward is the body. The body is what makes you you, right? So because I have this body, you know, and there's a lot of connotations to that, that's what makes me me, right? Then the third candidate, uh, which he thinks is considerably more plausible because he just doesn't think the soul or the body theories really have a lot of traction any longer for reasons we can discuss. Uh, but the third candidate is the brain, right? The brain is what makes me, me, right? So as long as I have the same brain tomorrow that I do today, uh, I'm still me, right? And there's some interesting implications that we can dive into with that. Like one of you mentioned, you know, what about real world cases? Well, there are people who have had, for instance, brain accidents or had part of their brain removed, right? And we'll clamp people around them will say, well, you're a different person now, right? Um, there's some interesting kind of implications for that where you can actually test this theory. But the fourth candidate, which he thinks is the strongest theory for reasons that we can unpack, uh, and he doesn't really talk about it that much in this paper, but it comes out a lot more prominently in his book, Reasons of Persons, is like uh, Eric was saying, the Lockean theory of selfhood, that it's my memories of being someone yesterday and then the year before and then the year before and the kind of psychological continuity uh, between who I was then and who I am right now that makes me me. Right. Uh, so I am Matt McManus because I remember being Matt McManus at age 10 and age one, age two. Cetera, I don't remember. Cetera, right? I don't remember being Victor at age two. But but by the way, well, like, you, but I guess I mean, mean is the a reason point that in your a... life that you would remember. Have, have, of course, of course. To... 
But, but, but I guess the... it, that prevents you from making those silly arguments like uh, you die when you wake up and then you're reborn each morning or you die when you go to bed <laughs> and then you're yeah. reborn each morning when you yeah. wake up again. Psychological continuity was probably originally meant to take on certain absurd conclusions like that. Right. Yeah. Right. And there are more sophisticated versions of this. Right. I mean, one of the things that he points out is that. Obviously, not everyone's a Lockean, right? And thinks that we're tabula rasa and that our experiences are who makes us. But he says, if you think about something like Kant, right? And the Kantian theory of selfhood, right? It's still experiential in a certain sense in that uh, what determines who we think we are is a kind of will that operates in tandem uh, with a phenomenal world as it appears to us, right? So it still has this kind of experiential component to it. Uh, but he says, you know, what started to emerge with modern philosophy is European philosophy is this conviction that maybe the reason why we can't pin down what the self is, is because there just really is no self, right? Uh, in a strong sense of the word, you know, um, it's kind of an illusion that was created as it were by language, um, sometimes a very productive and useful illusion, but nonetheless an illusion. Uh, now, Parfit doesn't always go that far, but he certainly flirts with it in Reasons and Persons, where he says, actually, it's quite possible that the Buddhists might have had the right answer, uh, that, in fact, one of our obligations as moral agents is to gradually do away with this vision of the self and to recognize that there's a fundamental continuity between who I think I am uh, and everyone else. Uh, so I need to adopt a more kind of holistic ontology uh, of the world than the kind of philosophy of the subject that you see emphasized in uh, conventional European thought. I mean, like intuitively, that's correct. You clearly did some supplemental reading because none of that was in the article that we read today. So well, I wish the... I wish I had read the rest of it. But with this article today, the method by which he takes this on, as most analytic philosophy does, is by starting with an abstract AF thought experiment <laughs> that you have limited options out of a truth table and you can pick which one you like best, except he goes it's through fun. all the Come ones on. that he doesn't like. Gives you the reason why they're untenable, and then finally gets to his point at the end. But his thought experiment is in our weird parallel reality that does not this one, but his uh, counterfactual reality. If you have a brain and you put your brain into a new body, now no one would say, he says, no one would say that you are a different person. That one's fine. However, we can also cut your brain in half and put it into two different bodies. Now we have a big question. Are you, is your identity continued once your brain is replaced into a new body? Is it both of those? Is it one of those? Call them lefty and righty for which lefty and righty. each body gets. Yeah, yeah. And so, it's also based on... is it yeah. neither of those? So you have three options to choose from if you're talking about identity as continuity. Are you now... Is, are you dead and now exist in two places at once? Because that would be a restructuring of identity... Or is it not an identity or is it yes identity? So he goes through these- Or split these, identity. <laughs> yeah. So he goes yeah. through these three options and gives a whole bunch of silly examples like, and I don't, I don't actually mean silly as in stupid here. Other parts are stupid, but silly is like, if you had, if you could split your own corpus callosum in half while you're writing a math oh, exam, yeah. and then you could have each half of your brain write half of the math exam you'd be done twice as fast and then you could reunify your identity after would that actually be identity so yeah and you could watch your left hand do the yeah. do the work that like you're not actually doing if you're on the left on the right half and like how weird that it's so it was it was bizarre and it's but it is worth mentioning that like and he mentions this in the article right there's like some cases of people who survive where like half their brain was obliterated 
Um, so it's like, yes, it's it's obviously like a ridiculous example, but it's not it's not based on nothing. It's based on the fact that like presumably you could survive with half no, a brain. This is actually cool though. Okay, so it's not you survive with half a brain in that example because it used to be a cure for epilepsy to actually sever yeah, exactly the corpus yeah. callosum. And there's some funny yeah. stories I've heard that we're not in here, but like people would be choosing an outfit to wear that day who had their their brains severed from our one half to the other, and they would pick an outfit with their internal narrative saying, I want to wear this because I like it because it's blue. But then their other hand would pick a different outfit and put it on the one that they didn't want to put on. So it was like there's two sides of their brain navigating for captain of the ship and one side wins out and the other side wins out, but it's not always the conscious side that wins out in these experiments. But nevertheless. Well, here, I I just wanted to kind of situate this in context, right? Because... I mentioned there are kind of four candidates he gives for what the self would be, to his mind, in European philosophy, right? There might be other candidates, and some people have argued that, but those are the four big ones, he thinks, right? Uh, And interestingly, he never really deals with the soul view, right? He kind of just says, nobody really believes in souls in the sense that Plato does or, you know, St. Augustine did anymore, so we can kind of put that aside, right? And there are some people who might criticize him for that, you know, if you're a theologian. But he says, you know, the body view is sometimes popular, but inherently, and he wrote another paper on this, right? Not very attractive, since we wouldn't want to say, for instance, that if my hand was chopped off or my legs were chopped off, or even if I was dismembered, that I disappeared, right? So you can take away 50% of my body. And in a certain sense, we might say, I am still there, right? Uh, And so the, the kind of stronger version of a physicalist argument, right? A kind of good scientific materialist argument is that, okay, so it's not the body that makes you you. Right, or at least not most of your body. It's the brain, right? And the kind of point of this thought experiment is to act as a heuristic. Like going back to something like Plato's Allegory of the Cave, right? It's a thought experiment to get you to think about this. Because he says, well, what about the brain generates selfhood, right? Is it actually the brain that generates this sense of selfhood? Uh, and you know, he gives a more refined version of this thought experiment later on that doesn't involve cutting the brain in half, where he says, okay, imagine I were to clone your body and then clone your brain and this brain had all the same memories uh, as the other brain, and I put it back in the same body, and then these two figures wake up and kind of go off on their own separate businesses, right? They have the same body and they have the same brain, but as soon as one of them has a different experience than the other, we start to like to say that there's something distinct distinct about them, that they're not the same person, right? Uh, so this is where he says, well, maybe it's the Lockean view that's more attractive, which is the conclusion that he reaches in this paper. So it's not the brain that makes me who I am, since it is possible for someone to have the same body and the same brain as me, and physically indistinguishable in every respect, but not be me. Uh, it's the experiences that we have that make us who we are. And later on, he criticizes this view as well, right? But I think it's a pretty powerful argument as an intuition pump, if you want to call it that, right? Um, because it does seem to me that even if somebody had my body and my brain, if he goes out, marries someone else, you know, decides to become a fucking gamer, you know, YouTube gamer rather than, you know, critical theory podcaster, you know, and he sits there talking about World of Warcraft or fucking whatever they're playing nowadays, you know, all day <laughs> long, that he's a different person than me, right? I mean, I think that's pr- pretty possible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it makes sense to me because in our day and age, too, like, you have all these identities on Facebook and people yeah. who set themselves up as these as these personal or these uh, public intellectuals and you, you, you're trying to figure out who somebody is and we all talk about, you know, you're not the person that you sort of put out online. You're you're something else. Your identity is, is somewhere else. It's not there. You can't like represent it. You can't summarize it. You can't make a list of things. 
And so it like identity is always obviously already a kind of slippery concept. But I'm, I tried to look for some stuff. Maybe maybe someone can suggest if there's anything out there because Derek Parfit basically takes the opposite view of. I mean, he starts with by going against the opposite view of the embodied mind theorists. If you're into like philosophy of mind, who already start with the assumption that your mind is not confined to your brain, but it's actually distributed throughout your your brain, your body, and your yeah. environment, and all of the social and and psychological connections that you have with it. And so it's more of a the you could call it distributed cognition. You could call it the embodied mind or the extended mind theory. And I'm 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 interested if if these people have have ever confronted or if there's been any clashes between Parfit's starting point and like the way that these people take for a starting. Well, point. I had the same I had the same like question too because as someone who's like very influenced by Mary Ponty, I obviously have sympathies to like the embodied mind. But but I guess like the conclusion I kind of came to was that they're not really talking about the same question because like I think like I don't think identity and embodied mind are necessarily the same thing. I think they I think the embodied mind like it still runs into similar problems. I think Matt kind of touched on them before with like, you know, if you take away because like, I don't think identity is the same as like a theory of what the mind is. Like, I think those are two separate questions, but I don't know if, if like I think. Yeah. So I don't know if they would actually necessarily have anything in principle. I mean, when I was reading the article, obviously I had a problem with the thought experiment because as someone who does like, like is convinced by the embodied mind theory, I was like, well, this idea that you could put a half a brain into a different body, like it's ridiculous. It's, it's incoherent with like everything that I, that I've learned from like Merleau-Pontian phenomenology. But, but I was like, that doesn't really matter because it's just a thought experiment. Like, like it's like, it, the question is broader about like how, how do we change like over time, like, how am I the same person? Where can I locate a self is different than, I think, a theory of cognition. While we're on this, I mean, okay, so his identity is basically means something like, what do you call I? When you say, here's me versus the rest of the world. But since you brought it up, could you explain how Merleau-Ponty's um, embodied phenomenology would differ from this so he could at least put that aside because as soon as he started talking about cutting up brains and putting them in bodies that's every Merleau-Pontian's response that was my response immediately well okay but since I name dropped it Merleau-Ponty French phenomenologist quick summary is you can't just take a brain out of its substrate and transfer it wherever you want and think that its habits its reality its identity can just be translated one-to-one -one when it's moved because the medium the body is the thing that creates the world and its meaning and how to interpret and navigate it. Anyway, Victor, I wondered if you could explain that position a little more. Well, I think, I mean, I think that like the, the main response, I mean, it, I could get into the weeds here, but I'll try, hopefully I could come up with like a, a concise, uh, like explanation. But I think the basic idea like of, of an embodied subjectivity is just that you can't like that you, you have to notice the way, like so much of our perception and our, and our experience of the world is actually like an emergent property of our entire like embodied engagement with the world. And so much of what we are is a result of that embodied engagement. Like just for one, it like a one kind of simple example would be, you know, like you, you're looking at a rock wall. Let's say you're like a rock climber or not a rock climber. This is an example I think Merleau-Ponty uses, right? And like how the world solicits you to it, not because of like some cognitive judgment that you're doing, rational judgment, but because of the way your body as like what Merleau-Ponty calls the body schema has been attuned so like 
you know, if you're a rock climber, that rock wall is going to solicit your engagement with it. It's going to pull you in. You're going to see opportunities for engagement that have that are directly related to how your body's been attuned as opposed to some mental rational judgment where you're like i could put my hand there it's it's much less cognitive i guess like our our entire subjectivity in the world than i think you know classical theories that want to locate all of cognition in the mind they kind of forget the the role that the body has in in i guess what we are um but then like to bring it back to parfit i don't know like i don't i like so he's making these 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 claims about if you moved one brain into a different body like i think the consequence of holding like a more merleau-pontian view would be that that just like isn't possible somehow because like the the it's it's like the entire experience of cognition like depends on the entire kind of central nervous system and the body and all of those things and like i guess the, the idea would be that like you couldn't just put a brain into another body because the whole system works as one thing. I think um, what he would he, what he would say is something like, if the brain even survived that, the experience of it would be so traumatic that it wouldn't be recognizable as the same system. So to think that you're you are in your brain, and if you just moved your brain to a new body, and this is a yeah, uh, Hubert Dreyfus's exactly. argument against putting your brain into a computer. If you put, yeah. you just transfer your brain into a computer, everything that you're used to about being in the world, about experiencing like even a rock wall as an object of climbing, if you had a different physical medium, that experience would be so traumatic that if your brain didn't just die of shock, it would have a serious long rehabilitation to go through before that could even be recognizable as a functional brain again. Yeah. Quick aside, before, quick aside. We should read that article for a future episode. The Dreyfus, that would be a fun one. And just before we get into the Parfit stuff again, just to add on to that, I think if we can all sort of readily agree that identity is a fiction to some degree, it's something we build, it's something we construct, yeah. it's something of ourselves that we project into the world. And I think the difference here is is sort of the material out of which that is constructed. And if if it's some kind of uh, full holistic, not just brain, but body and soul and community and uh, environmental relations, then that's the material out of which you construct an identity. And so if, even if we can all readily agree that identity is a fiction, the material maybe is a little bit different. What we see goes into identity. And then the second thing is Parfit considers identity is not important, which is another sort of contentious point because people do invest a lot of importance in their identity. And his argument is almost, I mean, he lays this out right at the beginning of the article, so I'm not really jumping ahead, but he just really says that if if you think that all these important moral value questions turn on what is identity or that you have an identity, then you're wrong. You shouldn't consider identity to be important in these moral questions. We can answer these questions without getting into the identity question, because the identity question, as he shows through the use of these teletransportation and brain hemispherectomy examples, is an undecidable, he'll claim. He says it's just something that we cannot decide. And that's the only purpose that he uses these weird examples for, is to show that you can't expect a clear answer about who would be whom, where would identity exactly. go in this situation. Exactly. You can never, ever expect a clear answer to that. So let's set that aside and then get to the moral questions. And then we'll find that even identity here is not important for moral questions and value questions. Yeah. And this is actually what I just wanted to say, because 
I do think actually the phenomenological objection is a good one. Uh, and it's something that he spent a, a fair amount of time on. Uh, so for instance, there have been some critics who contended that he undervalues the importance of the body uh, for a theory of selfhood. And he gives another kind of less, I would say, eccentric thought experiment where he says, well, imagine there was somebody who, whose, frontal, whose cerebral cortex was essentially non-functioning, uh, but most of their brain was still operational and was able to maintain their fundamental bodily functions. So they were hooked up to a machine in a hospital. Uh, you know, most of their brain was active. It was keeping their body go going. Uh, they were being fed through a tube. Uh, but it was very clear that their cerebral cortex was never going to function again. Even though 90% of the brain was work working, we would still probably say that, and the body was still intact, that that person was gone, right? That they were effectively no longer there. Uh, and what he kind of contends on this basis is that we need to distinguish between processes of cognition, right? Or what the brain does. Uh, and as Victor would put it, a theory of identity, right? Who I am, my account of selfhood, right? And he says that one of the difficulties that we find, again, in European philosophy is this notion of selfhood has been so centralized that most people aren't really even able to consider processes of cognition independent of some account of selfhood, right? This is kind of the Cartesian ghost that haunts us all, right? Uh, this notion that whatever it is that I'm conscious of, there has to be a me that's conscious and there has to be a me that en is engaging in cognitive processes, right? Sorry, and what I want to get at is, again, uh, it's not like he's trying to argue that phenomenology is wrong or its version of the self is wrong. Uh, what he's contending is that there really is no version of the self, right, that we really need to morally emphasize. Uh, and I'll get it very briefly into his teletransportation argument because that's, I think, also a really interesting one that I'm sure your pills will be really pissed off about, right? Uh, but he says, you know, think about it like this. You know, the last candidate standing is this Lockean theory of the self, of personal identity, right, that I am my memories, right, that... Uh, you can put my brain into another person's body, but as long as I wake up remembering that I am me, I still am me, right? Uh, and he says, think about it like this, right? Imagine, you know, you go into a teletransporter and your body is essentially cloned on Mars uh, and you wake up and you see on the screen this other person with your memories on Mars, uh, but then the person who's running the teletransportation machine says, well, we're really sorry to tell you this, but your body is going to dissolve right now. Uh, you're going to die and be destroyed. But don't worry, you know, you're still alive, right? You know, there's this person with your body, with your brain and your memories carrying on on Mars, right? Uh, and Parfit says, that would probably not be of a lot of comfort to me as the original person, because my body, brain and memories are still going to be destroyed, even though they live on in this other person. It's right? kind of like The Prestige, the movie The Prestige. Yeah, exactly, right? And he says, this goes to show you that even the Lockean memory theory of the self is subject to this very serious problem, right? Because it doesn't even seem like memories give us a theory of the self the way that we want to. Uh, and there are people who try to recover it or argue from, you know, well, there are different ways of kind of resuscitating it on this basis. But the conclusion he makes is that we should just drop this, the, the whole idea of selfhood for the most part entirely uh, and move on prioritizing different things since it just leads to all kinds of paradoxical situations that can never be resolved, right? But paradoxically, when you say European, you're basically meaning the intellectualist tradition of European thought, exactly. not the actual phenomenological tradition that, I mean, it would, I guess it would be uh, yeah, questionable say, whether he encountered that, Heidegger or something like that. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that any, any, I don't think that most continental the theorists like that I can think of would, I feel like most would have 
the same reaction that pills had you know would be like well i agree with the conclusion like like this is this seems right like yeah the, the self is an illusion it's not it doesn't have a stable kind of you know um like kernel of like objective reality it's kind of a fiction i think that most uh continental metaphysics kind of assumes that or even or even psycho psychoanalysis does like yeah psychoanalysis is a good example of cybernetics that. does that it's an anglo tradition I would say that he would, I think he would say, in fact, I know he would say, because he talks about this in his other three volume book, right? Uh, that yes, you know, and in fact, he references Heidegger and Nietzsche by saying that they intuited elements of this argument, uh, although they put it less systematically than they, he did in his big book, Reasons and Persons. But he says the interesting thing about it is they never actually draw out the moral implications of what they're say, talking about, right? I mean, if you think about Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche says, you know, in a certain sense, our moral task is to become who we are, right? Become who we truly are. Uh, Heidegger says we have to live authentically, right? So even though they're critical of certain aspects of the notion of personal identity, they can't think of a moral way of evaluating the world without reintegrating some vision of selfhood and prioritizing it in their outlooks, right? Um, and he says, you know, this is really true if you look at a lot of continental theory, which we've talked about before, everyone stresses in some way, shape, or form emancipation, right? Uh, and part of it would say, if you really don't believe in the self, then the only response to that is emancipation for who? For what? Right? There's no one left to be emancipated. So we need to do away with all this rhetoric. Just to, just to summarize a little bit where we're at, if you appeal to something like the social contract theory of society, then it's a society that's made, it's an aggregate made of a bunch of individuals, autonomous individuals, each autonomous individual is thus going to have opinions and they're going to be seeking their self-interest and they're going to be trying to weigh in on politics in the way that best serves them. So this, whether or not there's an individual at the center of this matters quite a, quite a lot. So we have this guy's version of it, which is essentially positivist in the end. It's like, what do we, what do we call the thing that everybody thinks is themselves? And then we have, I mean, we'll, we'll get to this at the end instead of right now, but there's a lot of other explanations for this. I, I think I mentioned uh, systems theory, mentioned cybernetics, uh, even, even just the intersubjectivity of language, I think speaks to this being like, it's not, it's not just what the eye thinks of itself that creates itself. There's a whole bunch of interpellative or intersubjective including language itself is evidence of the fact that these different individuals exist. But do we want to go through um, a few more of his arguments about why that's not true? Because he, he's, he loves the freaking thought experiments. What if you combined with another person? Would your beliefs cancel out? If, if you are a conservative and I'm a liberal and we combined our consciousnesses, would we Fusion? just cancel out the beliefs and have like you... a political, a politically indifferent person at the yeah, end of become it? Become a floating voter if you, yeah. if you're, if you one side votes labor, one side votes conservative or something. He also says, I, I don't like gingers, which I thought was weird to put in there. Yeah. So either. <laughs> Elements of the two parts would cancel each other out or some kind of middle ground, like if one was stronger than the other or some kind of like middle ground would reach, would be reached if they're equally as strong. And so if you like chocolate ice cream and the other side that you're being fused with likes vanilla ice cream, you might like chocolate swirl after that. <laughs> if you could find some kind of fucking middle ground product that'll, that'll replace your identity. 
God, just like uh, you know, this this art, the reading this article, like as a as a Trekkie, like a Star Trek fan, especially of like the Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, like there's a couple episodes that like speak are exactly to this. Like there's a there's a there's an alien species called uh, the Trill, where they have this like this like kind of like um pair or I guess it's not parasitic uh, relationship. It's more of what symbiosis, where they have a symbiont that like gets passed from humanoid which is more like a human to, to human like up generations but the sim- symbiote lives like thousands of years and it gets passed from person to person and it keeps all of the memories of all the previous bodies that it was in and then like and there's like an episode where i think one of the characters gets the symbiote and then like her her like opinions about stuff changes right like she stops liking food starts liking other foods because she's like taken in all these other previous memories um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of kind of like fodder uh, for like kind of stuff that's that's explored in Star Trek. Well, and actually, this is why I'm a bit surprised you didn't like this pills because you know Deleuze likes science fiction also for a reason, right? And this is one of the things that par foregrounds, right? Wait, Which is that wait, 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 these- hold on, hold on. Just because person A prime and person A one reference <laughs> science fiction thought experiments in <laughs> philosophy does not mean that person A prime and person A one maintain the same Q preference for fiction thought experiments to equal state of affairs one in which philosophy and science fiction experiments are both the same <laughs> thing. No, no, I know, but I mean, this is what it's I'm getting at, right? Dislike, saying, too. The thing about it is that these kind of heuristic devices that you see developed in great science fiction are really useful for thinking through these problems in a concrete way that's also digestible and understandable to people. So I'll, I'll go back to the kind of argument he makes about the teletransportation argument, right? So a lot of you, uh, I know we all kind of are critical of this idea of possessive individualism, right? Uh, so it has its roots in Lockean philosophy, amongst others, right? If you follow C.P. McPherson's idea, right? Uh, and, you know, possessive individualism is essentially the idea that what matters uh, is that I own myself, uh, and that it's important that I own myself because what I want are to have the kind of experiences uh, that are valuable to me in life, right? Um, which means I want to accumulate resources in order to have the kind of experiences that I want in life, and so on and so forth. And right? importantly, the- doesn't it mean you own the products of your of your labor of your body as well? Like you own your body. And you own the products of the labor of your body. Like Locke talks about when you join your labor to something, it becomes yours. And this is actually something that's shared by Locke and even people like Marx. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You you own the labor of your body. So it's not like this is a weird thing. He's picking out a, a strange corner of philosophy. It's quite exactly. widespread. And he points out that like sometimes Locke actually puts this, or, or Lockeans, like Hayek, put this in almost bodily terms, right? That my property is almost a part of me. If you think about, you know, legal personhood, right? What I own and who I am can sometimes become very indistinguishable, right? Because they're so inextricably entwined in the philosophy of possessive individualism, right? Uh, and the teletransportation thought experiment, Star Trekky as it is, is meant to show you, look, even this idea that you are your memories or your experiences that lock foregrounds so importantly doesn't really hold water, right? Because Somebody can be there with your body, your brain, your memories, and not be you fundamentally, right? They're on Mars, going off, living your life with all that, but they're not who you are. Well, right? just quickly, can I just say there is actually a Star Trek episode <laughs> where like a Riker, uh, I know the one you're talking about, Deep Space yeah. Nine, right? There's a transporter yeah. accident where he's like, he's like, uh, he's uh, on some planet and then he gets transported up and like leaves and everything's fine. But it turns out there's like an, an accident and a, a fluctuation and a copy of Riker stays on the planet and get, ends up being stuck there for like 
20 years or they and then they find him like or it's 15 years later and then they both confront each other and they're both very different people at that and point. his ex-girlfriend is basically like i like the long the younger version of you better the one who well he's not younger he's the same age it's oh, yeah, just sorry, that he's the... like uh, but he's still like stuck in the old past right because his career didn't move on he's just been stuck on this planet the whole time yeah and i mean one of the things that he th- says that i think is really interesting is it's not like he's saying harper was a very humble guy in a lot of ways that this is a really novel argument right where he says Look, you know, there are various kinds of European philosophers that have anticipated this. Uh, Nietzsche and Heidegger amongst them with the kind of anti-essentialist account of the self. Uh, He also points out that this was put forward a lot more forcefully in things like Buddhism, right? Again, this idea that the self is illusion that we need to overcome. But he says the problem with European philosophers is they never are willing to accept the moral implications of what they're talking about. So you could even see him as giving a kind of Nietzschean critique of Nietzsche, right? Uh, Where he says, you know, Nietzsche, again, argues that the point of life is to become who I truly am, right? Uh, Heidegger has to resurrect some idea of selfhood by talking about authenticity, right? Uh, many left-wing philosophers have to argue about emancipation for self-creation, right? And he says these are still too beholden to the philosophy of possessive individualism. And it shows you how stringent a hold it has on our imagination, right? That no European philosopher, even those that, that critique the idea of the self, can think of a way of thinking of imagining what's important without the self or some kind of self adjacent concept. Right. Uh, and in his later work, he says, that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to come up with a kind of moral theory that is not really tied to selfhood. Right. At all. Which as it turns out is a really difficult thing to do. Uh, since of course, then you have to ask, well, who is it that's being moral and on behalf of what? Right. Uh, which is the problem he spends 3000 pages unconvincingly trying to answer. I should say very unconvincingly. Well, can I, but quickly, can I, can I just say like to the, to the point about, uh, you know, I think it's, it's interesting because it's making me think of our, our anarchy episode, which, uh, Eric wasn't here <laughs> for, but the rest of us were. And like, chaos, you baby. Know, I think, doesn't that, 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 that argument for anarchism of that particular book kind of seem to depend on a very narrow definition of, of autonomy that I think is maybe somewhat comparable to this like very narrow definition of selfhood that doesn't really make sense to me. And like, I think that's, one of the problems that I had with the anarchy book is like this, like this strict definition of autonomy. It's like, what do we, it's kind of illusory. And then it's like, you're making room for something when really what matters, I think is like our social relations and our cooperation with others. And I think to some extent, there's something analogous here where it's like, really what matters is not like some strict stable identity that I can locate, but it's really like the, the life processes and like the, the kind of different, I think he calls it degrees, right. Of continuity degrees of connectedness, like all these things are, are really what matters. And I think that there's a, there's something compelling about that for sure. And I just want to offer one kind of olive branch to Eric, because I think you might actually really like this. Because one of the things that he says is once you start to abandon, really abandon the philosophy of possessive individualism, right? And realize that the self is not what matters and that the disconnect I draw very sharply uh, as a European thinker between myself and everyone else uh, starts to become blurred. I realize that my obligations stem far beyond uh, just towards the human. Uh, It extends towards things like future generations, right? Those who continue on above me. It also extends to non-human animals because the disconnect I draw between myself and human animals also starts to break down. Uh, There are some people who have argued it even applies to the environment, right? The notion that myself should be prioritized over other non-cognitive, cognate uh, living things might be problematic, right? Uh, now, he doesn't spell out all of these implications in the book because, I mean, I was already doing a lot. Uh, but he says, you know, this seems to at least have an elective affinity with what I'm saying, right? That once we get rid of 
the self as the locus of what matters, there's all kinds of interesting possibilities that open up. Uh, one of the most obvious ones, again, when he talks about future generations is, if I'm not what matters purely and exclusively, why should I prioritize myself over somebody who might exist five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 generations from now, right? Which if you really think about it, has some pretty fucking weird implications. Right. Well, well, yeah. If I can, if I can take your olive, olive branch and stick it up my bum for a second, um, <laughs> I think that I do appreciate some, like some aspects of Derek Parfit's argument. Like, like my my little caricature of like we are all rational individuals in a marketplace of ideas, making rational decisions day in day. Out. Like that doesn't apply to him because yeah. he doesn't think that we are rational individuals. Because for him, you know, rationality is one of the basis for sort of self-interest because you think well if i'm me and what's rational is that i have self-interest in me then i'm going to do things also for my future self because that will be me as well and so what i should do now should either be you know immediately beneficial or beneficial to me somewhere down the road and insofar as my progeny also carries on my sorts of projects in life then i should also and and it creates these like insular it creates this insularity yeah. around this idea of rational egoism and he's trying to break that so i i do appreciate that and the and the vistas this kind of opens up well what if we're not just connected with other human beings what if there's connectedness with other non-humans as well and environments and ecosystems so i mean i mean i am i'm pregnant with the possibilities but but the way he just articulates all of this in this first paper, which is really all I've read of Parfit, it, it, there's just certain things that get to me. I mean, one one just simple analogy that I come up with is that you know he he treats identity like the the view that he's sort of arguing against as really just like a bunch of links in a chain. No, when, yeah, yeah. when maybe we should really think of identity more as like a twined rope with many, many strands so that it's not simply as weak as the weakest link. It's more like a bound fibrous thread that stretches across time and some of those connections can be severed. Well, I, I mean, I don't think that's a that's actually an analogy that is completely out of sorts. He just doesn't think of it, but not here anyway. But so I do appreciate various things that he yeah, says that's... here. I'm curious, uh, I'm curious actually to you, Pills, you know, like let maybe it's worth bringing up what, what is, what do you find so objectionable about the method and is it, and would you say that it's purely an aesthetic objection or do you think that there's philosophical consequences that you are opposed to that, that follow from this, this kind of method? Uh, no, it's a linguistic objection mainly because when he says okay. we should do away with the concept of the self. And I, I appreciate Matt making us all charitable to this because yeah. I think it's... Some of it is silly. I'll give you that. Like The second I read stuff like this, my brain goes into like critique mode where I'm looking at every line going, fuck this, fuck this, fuck this, fuck this. But I, <laughs> I read the entire thing front to back, gritting my teeth, and I, I appreciate what's being said here. But what's really being said when we should do away with the concept of the self is we should do away with the language of the self and the process of mm. self-identification, which is only one very small aspect of the self. But this is what logical positivism is about. It's playing language games with thought experiments, with words, with variables, and making graphs and shit like that. So we can, we can say, fine, that there's some continuity with other thinkers that we need to do away with the language of the, of the self, 
But when you're referring to those other thinkers, a lot of what they say, Nietzsche included, is you do have self-interest, but the self-interest is not derived from one single kernel. Self-interest is one drive among many that makes up sort of a chaotic mass that comes to be identified as the self. And the identification is really important because whether or not you think that self exists, it does, at least as a word, mm. at least as an identification that people in basically every language say I as the subject of a sentence. So it just exists on that ground alone. Now, the question that's being asked here is what does the self refer to? And he kind of says it refers to nothing, which I think is really wrong because if you're doing that, mm then all the insights of critical theory that we usually talk about on this show is that you don't just make decisions about yourself. You're in a world of systems where other things make decisions about you too. You're a criminal or you're like an upstanding citizen or whatever, or, or even identity politics more properly when we're talking about like systems of institutionalized racism or something like that. That's not you deciding that I'm not a self or I am a self, that's something else that makes a decision about you. And we can talk about state apparatuses and ideological state apparatuses. So to say, let's get rid of the language of the self, I mean, even if that were a valid goal that we could just decide in a philosophy paper and publish it, that everyone should stop saying the word, it doesn't make the word go away. And it also elides what the other interpretations of the self is, which really do have uh, large consequences in every system that you interact with. Because the world isn't the way that you describe it using your logical language. The world is a whole bunch of power, systems, uh, competition, and different ways of processing information. Really, all this is to say is that just because the word doesn't refer to the same thing through every one of your thought experiments, doesn't mean it doesn't refer to anything at all. If it makes you feel better, I criticized him for exactly this uh, in my first book, Making Human Dignity Central to International Law. Like basically saying, you know, there's really no critical account of society in any of this. It's a very philosophical, like big P philosophical argument that only an Oxford philosopher could come up with, right? Since it's kind of dissociated from the broader world. And like, I completely agree that parts of this are really kind of very silly, hyper-intellectualized, and you kind of have to ask yourself, like, what's the cash value in my normal life? You know what I mean? How would I go about criticizing actually existent institutions of repression and domination on this basis? But I, I do think in his later books, uh, I don't want to get too much into this because they're fucking long, he does actually have an argument for this, right? Where he says, look, you know, part of the problem is that possessive individualism, like Eric was saying, tends to lead us to think that the thing that I should be doing essentially is looking after me. Uh, and there's a theory of selfhood that's built into this, right? Which is that I'm looking after me now uh, because I expect that in the future, future me is going to be better off. And I look forward to making future me uh, into somebody who's wealthier, more powerful, et cetera, et cetera. And this creates a kind of ideological environment where people engage in competition to try to improve their situatedness uh, or at best the situatedness of their next uh, of kin, right? You know, that my children will carry on my project of self-aggrandizement after me. Right. And he says, actually, what we should be doing is dropping this kind of possessive individualist morality, whether in its Nietzschean slash continental or liberal variants uh, and focusing on 
a kind yeah. of uh, consequentialism. I, mean, I like, yeah, and insofar as his theory is saying, you know, like a like personal identity is not super important for certain moral questions, or maybe all of them. Like, I think I agree with him, in, but then I'm, I'm not going to make that extra step and be like, so this is a good basis for utilitarianism, right? Because then you get into utilitarianism, and then it just turns into this strange mm-hmm. zero-sum game where it's like, you got to produce more happiness, but if you have more people who are less happy, their happiness could still add up to more than less people yeah. who are more happy. So we should go with the more people who are less happy option. Like it just becomes this weird like calculus of happiness and goodness. And it, I think that puts a lot of people off of this stuff because then it, that just seems very managerial. Like you're training a class of people to go and like run a society based on these views. And that's a little bit scary to me. But like I said, I do like, you know, he's not going to also take like the sort of neoconservative view that there is no such thing as society. It's just a collection of, of individual, rational individuals. So, I mean, I'm, I'm on the fence, which is okay, because I'm not on the other side of the fence. I'm straddling. So yeah, what, do I, you, I, what do you do when the cop says, like, put your hands up and get, get up against the wall, and you're like, sorry, officer, I don't have a self. I'm not even here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not even here. You... Quickly saw off your arm and be like, see, I'm a different person now. I, I wasn't a criminal when, I, no, my past self was a criminal when I was in prison. I am no longer. Can I come out now, What's well, funny, isn't isn't there like, uh, isn't there a part in like, I mean, isn't there a part in like being in nothingness where Jean-Paul Sartre like talks about like uh, his account is just like you, you know, there are no, does he talk about the homosexual, that there is no actual homosexual, there's only like homosexual acts or something like that, like each each choice, each decision you make or something like that? Well, see, that's like a perfect example, actually, because Sartre was talking in the context of existentialism and what you do is primary. But from Foucault's history of sexuality, there was no such thing as sexual orientations until it was constructed as a social category. So you have some sense among the Greeks where it's something that some people do and then it becomes a category of deviance under the Christian knowledge state. And then it's a psychiatric category. And today it's a state sanctioned category. Right. So it's well, not like there's a kernel of reality or gene that defines sexual orientation as identity. But clearly it's real, even if it's contingent. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I think, uh, you know, but you raise an interesting question before pills just about like, so what is the, you know, with the cop example, right? Like, Obviously, these words are are like playing some sort of a, a heuristic role, right? So, like, if we accept Parfit's account, which I think it's it's convincing by and large. So, like, you know, what is the device of representation? Uh, when I say the device of representation, I mean like the word, the self. Like, what is it representing? Uh, if there is no real self, you know, it, I mean, you mean uh, in that example? Yeah, or just in general, like, yeah, in the example, or like in general, like, what's the what's the like kind of um, implication? He says right at the mm-hmm. end, uh, he gave me a trigger word. No, trigger word's the wrong word. He gave me a word that like put me on to what my answer to this would be if I were asked. Because he says, there is no underlying person who we both are, referring to his past self and then his current self. Um, and then he says, this is a decision. So decision for me references systems theory. And in systems theory, it depends on which system at that moment, whether it's a, a, a like a social system, like a legal system, 
or whether it's a medical system, like the doctor is diagnosing you. It depends on where you are in every single context, what the self constitutes. So if it's a cop arresting you, the context there is whether or not you've done something legal or illegal. So then you're either a criminal or an innocent person being arrested. If you go to the doctor, you're not a full individual. You're just a body that's probably broken and, or needs to be improved in some way. If you're going to court, you're either, I don't know, a plaintiff or, a, or being charged with something, you know? So it depends on where you are in each intersubjective context, how the self is located. But I agree with him only on the fact that there is not one thing that goes through all those events as the same thing, except as the person who describes themselves as I. So that's valid, but it is a, a, almost a, a floating signifier in the sense that that saying I doesn't actually refer to all those instances. Right. So, so there is subjectivity then, right? As opposed to like, so there's no self, but there is subjectivity. Subjectivities. Yeah. So. But subjectivity in the logical sense is really just almost grammatical, like something that can be right, a subject right, right. of knowledge, some subject which can be can serve as something you can predicate some other thing on. Like you have to like obviously like a huge submerged portion of Parfit that we're not bringing up here is is in is in formal logic where he actually draws these arguments out and in like their just basic logical categories a if 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 a then b if b then c so does that mean a is c as well like he he like this is all that that's almost like uh the the structure of his argument is these logical categories but i was going to say in terms of systems theory it would be interesting how interesting how this might cash out because we've done episodes on like autopoiesis, the concept from systems theory about what gives a system sort of its identity across time. And if identity- Sign up for the Patreon. Yeah, and, uh, Patreon episodes. Uh, but if you are looking at systems, like what constitutes the identity of the system? How does it maintain its identity across time? And then at what point do we say that it's a different system now? Almost, again, with Parfit, it's almost like, I mean, we're not talking about persons now. We're talking about any sort of system. But it's the same sort of thing. Does identity matter there? He even gives an a, a national identity example. Like the nation considers itself continuous, right, from its founding till the present day. But is it really the same thing? Like that's at each moment, pick 1950 and 1980. That's not really important for him, whether it's the same or not. Because again, we're getting into the identity questions. Yeah. And I should say he does have a very, very thin account of selfhood. Uh, where he basically says, you know, that there's a kind of continuity uh, that carries on uh, that isn't necessarily psychological uh, and might actually be invested in other people. Uh, but this is the kind of way that we describe the self using the language that we use. Uh, but, you know, what I want to argue is that there are ways that you can respond to this, but most of them tend to actually take certain Parfidian objections on board. So in analytical philosophy of mind, there's kind of two broad schools of thought, right? Uh, one is, you know, materialism, if you want to call it that, uh, and the other is some iteration uh, of rationalism. Physicalism, right? they call it, right? Yeah, physicalism, right? Uh, and, you know, physicalism is usually associated with people like Dan Dennett, right? You know, the argument that the mind just is the brain. The mind is what the brain does, per se. And then you have people like David Chalmers and then people like John Searle who will say, well, no, consciousness is something that's different than the brain. It's kind of over and above the brain. 
Um, it needs a brain in order to emerge, but you can't necessarily reduce it just to its physical properties. Okay. Don't want to get into all that because it's pretty complicated, but the kind of argument that okay, Parfit influenced this is by signifying that far too often in the history of European thought, we've kind of drawn this one-to-one -one relationship between consciousness and selfhood, right? That to be itself is just to be conscious, right? Uh, and what both the physicalist and the rationalist, if you want to call them that, have kind of taken on board is this idea that actually identity is something that's not necessarily distinct from consciousness, but can't be just drawn uh, or we can't be just conflated with consciousness, right? That the notion of the I that we're talking about, if we can speak about it at all, has to come from somewhere else, right? Than just the fact that we're conscious. Uh, and you know, Dennett has this interesting argument drawing upon Parfit saying that it's kind of like a hologram that you know plays uh, as part of emergent physical properties uh, that we call the mind, right? This idea uh, of the I is a virtual thing, right? And Chalmers has a different kind of argument in the same respect. Uh, but it's worth noting that none of them are willing to go back to this old argument uh, that you would associate with something like intellectualism, right? Which is that consciousness equals selfhood. And I think that really speaks to the power of Parfit's arguments, right? That they were stringent enough that they shifted the conversation in a pretty interesting new direction. So there's like, there's two sorts of things underpinning Parfit's argument of, against personal identity and why it doesn't matter. And one of them is, is, what I, I'm looking at the I'm looking at some stuff on the the Routledge Encyclopedia of Philosophy here, and so what we've been discussing so far with the fission fusion examples, separating brains, putting brains together, whatever, is called the the diachronic thesis uh, over time, and then he and then he has his argument from reductionism, which is another the the second pillar, and reductionism is basically saying that you can describe reality that refers to b bodies and you can refer to your experiences you can talk in other words you can talk about the world without reference to persons personal identity and and in that sense it would be complete it would leave nothing out of the description by not referring to persons so it's a reductive it almost sounds like a physicalism here reality can be completely described without reference to persons so it's in you have an impersonal description argument underlying this other sort of this this sort of identity fission argument that he presents and the reductionist argument is i think much much weaker for me anyway but cuz i disagree with it um but again i don't know if i disagree with the idea that it can be you can describe reality without reference to persons, without personal identity. Okay, maybe. I mean, I'm not. I don't have anything ready against that sort of way of thinking, but it just seems to me to lead to kind of, I don't know, other 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 avenues that I don't want to go. Maybe like a sort of Dawkins molecular biology, where we're just vehicles for for genes and the ident the whole identity and value questions are in a completely different sphere they're almost like not important and then so when it's not important in that respect you got to think okay well then where's the humanism from this coming cuz if if we accept this argument and we say okay identity doesn't matter then it's almost like an equation like that plus that equals we should be altruistic but where's the force behind that where where's the effective force behind that argument where it's really just more like a mathematical calculation supported by extremely brilliant and subtle and amazingly logical views that he's presenting here 
It's brilliant and subtle. And I wish I could could have written a paper like this just as much as I wish I could have written songs I don't like very much. But it's it's a problem for me anyway. But I, I think it's not just a problem for you because this is, ex- I mean, you hit the nail on the head, I think, with exactly the problem that he devoted the rest of his life to after the, uh, Reasons and Persons, not this paper. Because he says, I've now shown you that the self doesn't really exist in any strong sense and that it's not what matters. But so much of our moral vocabulary turns on some notion of selfhood to give it that kind of force, right? And he says, this is exactly why people like Nietzsche and Heidegger uh, and Bentham really struggled with coming up with arguments, you know, where, where they would come up with arguments against the self and the prioritization of the self, but they have to sneak it back in because otherwise they can't give an account of what we should value, what's important. Because value has to be value to someone, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and this is a point where he gets into Shidwick, right? Where Shidwick says, the ideally our ethics or our morals would be completely impartial, right? Removed from any self-interest, any kind of personal motivation whatsoever, right? Uh, but if you do that, then on what basis do you say people should be moral since there's really no one left to value anything? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? I get that. You know, if we're entirely impartial about the world, then if we're entirely impartial in our approach to ethics, why should we just be entirely impartial or indifferent to the whole notion of morality? And um, Sidrick says this is the most profound problem in moral theory. Uh, and he actually says, I can't solve it. Right. It's just irresolvable. We should be impartial not self-interested in our approach to what's important, but unless we are self-interested, we have no reason to prioritize yeah. doing something. Right? And of course, I, I completely as- agree that the way we talk about things is really important and has an effect on those things or the sort of underlying assumptions of the way we talk about things. So even if we do preserve language of the self, I mean, we have to sort of shift the basis in a certain way. But again, like, how do we actually do that is one question. But it really, it goes to the heart of all the political correctness today, because the way we talk about things does matter. And whether you're a grumpy person who just wants to talk about things the way you want to talk about them, and that's it, then that's fine. But I mean, that's the problem. And you're just running up against it, is that the way we talk about things does matter. But this is a this is the again the problem with the way that this argument is spelled out like this because it's assuming that language is the type of thing that can sure. be ontologically correct or ontologically incorrect about things. So if even if the word self is a a wrong word and doesn't refer to something, then it it doesn't actually make any difference because what he's doing by making this whole I mean, like Eric said, you got to have respect for the guy because it's well done. But still, it's a game. And the assumptions that are that it is based on is specifically that language is not something that's used by people in context for, for different reasons at different times. It's about a truth-finding, a fact-finding mission that we have to have the right terms for things. Yeah, I think Richard Rorty in his own analytical way, tried to push in this direction. I don't know if he actually read Parfit. I can't remember any references to Parfit in his work. But, you know, know, Rorty says something similar, where it's like the problem with Parfitty-type arguments is they are subtle and nuanced, and they seem very powerful uh, when you push them to an extreme. Uh, But they are dependent upon a kind of analytical approach to language uh, that mistakes the fact that language can do many different things. Right? So maybe when we're talking about the self, it's just a kind of language game that we've played because it's the vocabulary that we've inherited from the European philosophical tradition, and it's useful for certain things. 
You know what I mean? It's useful to make certain kinds of claims. Uh, and Rorty says, you know, maybe in the future we will come up with a new kind of language that's not dependent on the self, right? And Parfit will help us figure it out. Uh, but this isn't something that the philosophers can dictate to you from an armchair. It's something that has to emerge organically um, in our community, right? Uh, and the fact that somebody who's as smart as Parfit or Shidgwick can't really think about a non-self-oriented approach to what's important uh, just demonstrates that our language hasn't shifted enough in that direction yet. We don't have the vocabulary to talk about a non-self-oriented approach yeah. to value. Back to hermeneutics. Yeah, and that, that's the way I would kind of respond to this, because I agree with what everyone said here, that I don't think his own, I never really thought his own moral theory was basically um, convincing, right? Mm. And, yeah, and it's because I think he never really solves this problem. But I think it's because the problem is really runs so deep, right, uh, that it's hard to see how it could be solved without this kind of transition in our moral vocabulary that takes place at a broader cultural level. I love this. If I could just drop a quote in here. This is... This is uh, Charles Peirce talking about personal identity in 1892. He says, he, says, he says, a strong light has been thrown upon the subject of personality by recent observations of double and multiple personality. The theory, which at one time seemed plausible that two persons in one body corresponded to the two halves of the brain, will, I take it now, universally be acknowledged to be insufficient. But that which uh, these cases make quite manifest is that personality is some kind of coordination or connection of ideas. And he goes on that way in his Law of Mind essay. So very much same sorts of ideas coming up here in the pragmatist tradition. But Peirce is not a nominalist. He believes in the reality of general ideas, and he recovers a sense of personality through mm. that path, which I won't go into, but I do think that when this language of selfhood does drop away, when and if, uh, it's not that people won't be unique anymore. It's not like we will regard yeah. people either as extensions of ourselves, which is basically just Roman slavery. And you're, you're an extension of, of someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you won't regard everybody as atomistic individuals who you kind of have to knock on the door of their consciousness and say, hey, do you want to vote today? And, and then they have the choice of whether or not to do that. And you could say that that's not okay. You could say that that's okay. You don't have to participate in de democratic institutions because you're unique. I think that we wouldn't be in those necessarily be in those sticky situations if the language of personal identity does sort of lose its importance. But again, like we said, there will be a lot of sort of back work to do because marginalized identities and the ways that people try to move towards social justice by asserting their own identity is still a huge factor in loads and loads mm. of academic pursuits. And I think it's a little bit difficult to get away from that. I couldn't I can see like a white guy from Oxford being like, we have to get rid of personal identity, but I couldn't see like a scholar from Algeria or somebody like that saying it. Although, I mean, I, I, I couldn't consider somebody like, I don't know, like a Derrida is putting a whole load of stock into personal identity either for very different reasons. But I don't know. I'm just trying to be nuanced here. Doesn't um like, isn't there a distinction to be made though between... um like personal identity and this kind of like trying to locate the, the continuity, like the, 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 it as sort of like having a, a subject independent identity, like this stable thing and just like something like, like, uh, like 
someone who ha- like the phenomenal field, like the fact that you have a phenomenal field as a, as a subjectivity, as a, as an embodied being with a history, like, I don't know, like what's the difference between, I guess, like, like are, is that idea compatible? Right. Because I don't think that the implication of this view is that like, you know, that yeah, like a, uh, a subjectivity doesn't have some history, which I guess I thought of that because of Eric, you were mentioning, you know, like uh, if you're a, 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 ra- a racialized individual, right? Like the, the stuff that you go through, like your experience in the day-to-day world is different, right? And it's just, I don't know, I just want to flag that, uh, you know, saying that there's no personal identity doesn't mean that like experience disappears or something, yeah. right? Mm. I-, I think that's exactly what he would respond to, right? I think he'd say, look, we can drop the language of personal identity and selfhood without dropping the idea that, again, there are conscious beings that have experiences in the world, right? Uh, what we just need to drop the idea is that there's something called I that has conscious experiences in the world, right? Uh, you can even make a kind of argument for this having a kind of phenomenological quality to this. Because again, he liked Heidegger, right? By saying that Heidegger is on the right step with this anti-essentialist approach uh, to the concept of selfhood. That I, what I am, if anything, is what I do rather than you know this Cartesian ghost in my mind, right? Uh, he just doesn't think that he spells out the implications fully enough that way. Um, Yo, do I do uh, analytic philosophers not take Wittgenstein seriously? Because I made a when I was writing, I kept writing his name in the margins because I thought that that was something that they would be responding to. But it doesn't seem like he does. He takes up any space in their minds. He, he does. I mean, actually, if you want to know the honest truth, Wittgenstein had such a huge and dominating impact on analytical philosophy, uh, including analytical philosophy of mind. If you think about Gilbert Ryle's. Uh, the concept of mind, uh, and William Van Armour Quine and his kind of approach to these issues also, right? Uh, that Parfit kind of was conceding as kind of a fresh new voice precisely because he didn't take that route. You know, he didn't decide to draw on Wittgensteinian accounts of the social subject and so on. Uh, he took this kind of weird sci-fi-y route instead. Uh, so at the time, it was considered pretty refreshing, right? Uh, actually, almost audacious that somebody would do this without reference to that. Um, Nowadays, I agree with you that I think he kind of went too far in the other direction by ignoring things like language and stuff. But well, I just mean in in terms of his his objection is that the word selfhood or identity, personal identity, doesn't actually refer to something, but it's clear that it does refer to different things a lot of the time, and he mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, his word, what it was, it psychological continuity does so much work in covering up mm. all the distinct ways that we use the word sameness when it refers to identity. And this is kind of why I was bringing up the the systems theory approach before, because when you say I, it's it, it doesn't mean the same thing all the time. It doesn't, and it especially doesn't mean uh, like de- a declarative statement almost all of the time. It's usually an intentional statement or some directionality, sometimes intention, but not always. He seems to think it's like only intention and intention based on memory. But, but this is this is exactly the argument Ryle put forward in the concept of mind, right? Which I actually I do think is legit, right? And you can see Ryle, I don't want to go too far with this because uh, I haven't really thought about it all that. But Ryle does something similar to what Parfit is doing uh, in using Wittgensteinian resources rather than the ones Parfit uses by saying precisely what you're doing, right? That Look, there's the specter of the Cartesian ghost that is at the epicenter of many of our accounts of the mind and of selfhood. Uh, and he says, Wittgenstein is essentially showing why we can do away with these. And instead, 
of talking about there as being something about some there being some kind of I and trying to pin down what that means. We just talk about the kind of different activities uh, that we employ with the word I. If I make a speech act, hey guys, I'm sucking on an icy pole. <laughs> it's not making an ontological connection to all of my past selves. Well, he's he does say, you know, like when you when you think about the idea, I'll I'll just bring this in, like of implanted or fabricated memories, for instance, and you do take the the concept of identity as seriously and central as the people he's arguing against sort of do, then you might say that my fabricated and false memories are also part of me. And then that opens the door to all kinds of weird, like reprogramming people and shit kind of arguments. But he, he does say that, you know, let's treat memory as an idea. And when you bring that idea to your mind, there's no mark or stamp on that idea that says this is your memory or this is a memory that I experienced. This is just a memory that you have and you infer that you experienced the content of that memory, whatever it's showing you. But there's no, from a logical point of view, that I is not internal to the idea or the memory. It's that's something you've added on. That's the extra part. That's the identity part that you got to get rid of in a way. And so this sort of services his argument in a little way by saying like, okay, so if your memories aren't necessarily your memories, they're just memories of some past experience, then that's a basis for continuity. I mean, if I have an intention to build a hotel and but I die too young and my children take up that project and complete the hotel, there's a certain kind of value to that sense of continuity between generations. Should we should we start arguing about whether my children are me? Well, no, that's that's obviously silly right away. But there's a certain sense of continuity. Uh, it's not one-to-one -one because they have all other kinds of desires and feelings and maybe apprehensions about the project, but there is a degree there. And that's what his point is. is It's all about degrees. We don't want to treat identity like it's a one-to-one -one relationship. There's You have a degree of you know, sameness with past selves and a degree of sameness with future selves, and that's that's as far as it should really go. That was my favorite part of this argument actually was the false memories because if yeah yeah again like just to frame it for the listeners he's he's countering Locke's you are your memories by pointing out that we have false memories and this made me think of uh like psychoanalysis where you can have a false memory that is very formative to what you think of yourself and what you how, how the way that you react to other people even if it never happened um, so yeah, I, I like that part. Or even think about when you wake up after a dream, how much like inference and connections your brain sort of automatically does that by the time you're describing your dream to the analyst, like it's not the dream you had. The dream you had was probably some fragmented crazy town thing like, like yeah. a lot of dreams are, but what our mind sort of automatically does is it builds the connections, it tries to impose a narrative, it tries to make some kind of order out of the memories. And that part, that construction, that fiction, if you will, 
is then built into it. And you can't really tell the difference between is this false? Is this real? Was this my experience or was this somebody else's experience? And Freud kind of makes this point too, is that you you, yeah. you elaborate your dreams and it's that, that sort of elaboration and the psychological connecting that's going on there. That's the interesting part. It doesn't matter that you dreamed about riding a flying unicorn naked over Toronto. It doesn't matter that that's the dream. It matters on how you sort of elaborate that dream and make connections to other aspects of your life. And that's why it's the talking cure because it just gets people to, you know, gets people thinking about those things. And so almost psychoanalysis like embraces the lack of of personal identity built into these kinds of things. Well, have, have any of you read the the short story by Philip K. Dick? We can remember it for you horse, wholesale. No. no. Okay. Well, it's the basis of Total Recall. You might remember. Oh. You know, there's the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, and then there's the crappier. I do Colin recall. Yeah. Yeah, you do recall. But I mean, this is one of the th reasons why he thinks these sci-fi examples are good because you know one of the things that we can remember for you wholesale about is Philip K. Dick wrestling with exactly this problem, right? Which is what if it was possible for us to implant memories in your brain? Uh, so you remembered being someone different in your past than you actually were. Well, does that mean you would wake up after this process and you would effectively be someone different, right? You know, you'd have the same body, the same brain, uh, you know, nothing had changed in that respect, uh, but your memories are different. And Dick seems to say, yeah, you would be, right? Because he's still beholden to this kind of Lockean idea, right? That your memories are what makes yourself. And Parfit's challenging that because uh, he says, look, modally in a possible world, if we could think of something like teletransportation being possible, I can show you how even this memory theory of the self can fall victim to extreme problems, right? Uh, when we realize that somebody can have your memories and still not be you, right? Uh, so I think this is why some people find analytical philosophy a bit wacky when it comes to the thought experiments, because they'll say, well, nobody would, that would never actually happen. We're never going to have teletransportation. Just like we're never going to have, you know, Philip K. Dex, we can remember it for you wholesale. But the point is to show that modally, since you can conceive of this occurring in a possible world, we can't say that this has to be a theory of selfhood that's constant everywhere and in all places and all times. Because it theoretically could be, if you want, invalidated uh, in these kinds of scenarios that we can think about. Right? And I, I think that this way of going about doing philosophy can be frustrating sometimes because, yeah, you do think like, wow, that will never actually happen. Right. Uh, but I think in its best with these kinds of like these kind of Parfidian heuristics or thought experiments, uh, it does force you to kind of think about the issue in a way that pump you didn't those before. intuitions. Intuition there you go. Pumps. Yeah. Your, pump your intuition pumps. Yeah. yeah. There you go. It's kind of interesting that he focuses so much on uh, disproving the Lockean theory when I mean, you could also consider it like just because you have any amount of memories, the second, the instant you're in a different environment, you're going to have different memories than your copy would. I thought that would like, because from a systems theory perspective, again, to bring it back to the thing that I know something about, anytime that an, an environment disrupts or tries to challenge your decision-making behavior, then you're a different system. So it would never be a question of if someone has your memories, are they you? Because they wouldn't be where you are. So this would never even occur as a problem in even like a, a cybernetics context. Yeah. You might be right. I mean, well, say, and I do, I do just want to say, I'm happy that we had this discussion. I know Pills wasn't too happy about it. I'm feeling much <laughs> better now, Matt, since we, uh, we starting off with freezies was a good idea. I don't know. I just, I like Parfit. I mean... I think that he has a lot of crazy things to say, and I'm never going to forgive him for being that tedious over the three books that I read. But it, 
these intuition pumps, as Victor put it, I think are pretty, pretty compelling. And they did kind of force me to reevaluate certain constants that I had, uh, for instance, about the importance of self selfhood in my own kind of moral outlook. Yeah. I mean, the part of the self that seems to matter is the part that matters when you're sitting alone, contemplating, thinking about philosophy, which as, you know, Heidegger and, and Dreyfus emphasizes that you're, you're like most of your life really is spent in a state of like absorbed coping with the world and questions of identity again are not really coming up because you're not every time you pick up a hammer you're not asking me was this a sufficient addition to my identity and then you put it down you're Mm -hmm. like oh my god i lost the hammer now you don't think that way when you're absorbed and coping and using tools and getting about in the world so in a way he's he's presenting a philosophy of philosophical identity which matters i guess you could say when you're sitting alone thinking contemplating writing philosophy but maybe it doesn't matter quite so much in the world because I think of a more maybe cognitivist, pragmatist perspective would look at maybe the role identity when you're investigating some sort of issue and something happens and you want to get to the bottom of the matter. You want to get to the truth. You want to produce an adequate idea. How do you do that? You go out into the world and you experiment, you investigate, and you allow reality to then come into your mind. Because what reality does, what reality is, is that which resists. It's that which pushes back. It's that which doesn't allow us to just have any idea about how things are. It's something that stops us from simply making up all kinds of crazy fictions. And so you might say there's no ultimate reality to anybody's identity, but we're always against reality in some sort of way when we're trying to get about in the world and make our ideas of ourselves. When we think we are one thing, something might happen and we might say, my God, I wasn't the person that I thought I was or something like that. And then (laughs) reality comes into play and it pushes back. And I think a more pragmatist or a more cognitivist perspective would be maybe a little bit healthy for Parfit because he's too much in the sort of logical atomist conception where ideas are like these atoms and particles that are in minds. Whereas as Peirce would say, you know, just the same way that we say, we don't say motions are in bodies, we say bodies are in motion. The same thing we should say, we're not, thoughts aren't in humans. Humans are in thought. I completely agree with you, right? I say we should wave the flag for cognitive pragmatism by saying that, Look, you know, even if the idea of selfhood is ultimately illusory or it's so thin uh, that we can do away with it, uh, nonetheless, you know, I think there are certain useful things that we can do with the language of selfhood, uh, amongst others uh, amongst others being um, a critique of real abstractions, right, uh, which is something that Marx talks a lot about, right? Uh, yes, it's possible that things like the self, uh, whether talking about the private self or corporate selfhood or whatever, might not exist um, in kind of cold, hard material reality. Nonetheless, because we treat them as important, they assume a kind of social significance. And just to say like another sort of way of looking at these sorts of issues is that identity is not something that's fully present at all moments in time. You're not all of who you are in every single moment. In a sense, you're an unfolding journey of a bunch of ideas in a way that you are sort of in as a as in a sense and this is what like the person argument here again is that is that if personality is a general idea then all general ideas really are you feel them in the moment in the living present as self-consciousness and then when you come to think about them they become general ideas and like you said those those ideas have real effects on the world 
and they're unfolding. Identity is always incomplete. That's that's another maybe way to look at it, that Parfit's assuming that we have this sense that identity is what it is, it's whole, and it's always here. And he wants to say that, let's get rid of that. But then maybe we can bring something else in, saying, well, maybe identity is incomplete. Parts of your identity go away, part, new parts are added, and it's more about the connection of the ideas than it is about, you know, like, the abstraction of it all into a single sort of idea where, you know, I have my birth, my death, and I am what takes place between. Well, I wouldn't mind talking about identity not as not as just even you die when you go to sleep and you're born when you wake up, but as small as a moment is, that's how often you're born and die. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There we go. Pure process, pure becoming. Instant identity. Just add water. Yeah. I often think about how, uh, you know, when I when I like have a family or kids or something like that, it's like independent Victor will be dead. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but like, but that's, that's not necessarily dark. a bad thing. New Victor, family Victor, a new one will will emerge from the ashes of the Victor dead. Victor 2.0. Uh, of, the, of, the dead, uh, of the dead independent Victor. And then don't think of those future selves as completely separate. They're already being determined by certain parts of your present. You just maybe yeah. think of it as something separate and way far away. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to suffer with liver damage. It's your fault. <laughs> Tequila yeah. in the woods. Yeah. All right. Well, we survived a uh, analytic article. Don't ever spring <laughs> that on me again, please. All right. Yeah, that'll be the end of that. <laughs> no, no, we'll do more. We'll do more. There you go, Victor. Let's Fucking break for Stana. You guys, uh, you guys, ready to break for some freezes? Yeah, break for some uh, for some icy poles. Frozen pops. <laughs> Frozen pops. Here we come. Uh, this is Pill Pot right. Thirty Six. Peace. Woo. Thanks, listeners. Eric Tate signing out. 